Well, good morning, church. For those of you who don't know me, I'm uh, Justin, the small groups pastor here at the church, and um, glad to be with you and get to fill in for Greg this week. Uh, I have to admit, though, this wouldn't have been a topic I would have freely chosen to uh, teach on, and if you're not sure what we're talking about today, you'll see soon enough, but um, today's one of those just sobering messages. Uh, It's one of those things that I think... um, it's going to be tough at times to kind of take in and think through, but at the same time, my hope is that it's an encouragement um, for us as well to be even bolder as we talk with friends and relatives and neighbors, uh, those that don't know Christ at this time as well. As I was preparing for this week's message, though, I couldn't help but think back on a trip that Cammy, my wife, and I took with some close friends of ours about five years ago. Um, maybe you've, you've been there before where you were going on a trip, going on a vacation, and you had a certain idea in mind of what the destination, the hotel, the cabin, you know, what that place was going to be like. But then you got there, and it wasn't at all what you expected. It was totally worlds apart. Um, that was kind of how this trip was for us. Uh, we, we were going camping with some friends and uh, kind of had two parts to the trip. So the first half of the trip, we were going up to Morro Bay and had a great time, just loved it up there. The second half of the trip, though, we were going to go up to, uh, to an area near Monterey, and we were going to camp up there. And um, uh, my wife, she had been up to Spirit West Coast a few years prior, and they stayed at this uh, great campsite that had, you know, nice green hills and trees, and just was a beautiful area. So we thought, okay, we'll go back there. You know, that'll be a cool place to stay. So we leave for Morro Bay. We start, start driving a couple hours up, and um, maybe about two hours or so pass, and then we see our exit. So we get off. And it's this little farming town, and, and I haven't been to this campground, but I thought, you know, it seems kind of a weird area to get off, but okay. So we, we got off there, and, um, you know, we kind of got lost and weren't sure, you know, what turn we missed. So we, we finally stopped, asked for directions, and then they told us where to go. So we traveled through the town, you know, past all the farms, and then headed more and more towards the foothills, and then uh, passed over a, a river on a bridge, and then kept going another 15, 20 minutes into the foothills, and then finally we arrived. And when we pulled up uh, to the gate to check in, the people were really excited to see us. And we weren't quite, weren't quite sure why, but soon that news came to us why they were so excited to see us. And it was because they had been just having some fires in that area, and nobody was there. Um, so, I mean, we, you know, check in and we thought, oh, let's go at least look at it, see what it's like, you know, see if it's as bad as they say. Because they said, you know, we've had recent fires, so pretty much all the hiking trails are closed down. You know, you can't really do a whole lot. And um, so we go past the gate, you know, travel up and think, well, let's just check it out. Let's scout it out. Let's see how bad it really is. So we get up there and there's no one there. I mean, the only people there are the camp hosts. And you know why they're there. Because it's free. You know, they're staying there for free because they're the camp hosts. And that's the only people in the whole place. And so we uh, pause and we go, okay, what, what are we going to do? You know, this place is hot. It's uncomfortable. It's all, you know, blackened on the hills. It's just bad. And then um, somebody, uh, I don't remember who, noticed this sign that said, beware of ticks. And that was kind of the last straw. We said, okay, for sure we're not staying here. But we'll have to figure out where we're going to go. And it was a little adventure even after that. But um, afterwards, we ended up finding out that where my wife had stayed was a place called uh, Laguna Seca. This campground was called Arroyo Seca. Definitely two different things. It was not the same place. 
And uh, what we expected, you know, the destination we thought we were going to was totally different from the one that we wound up at. And the reason I mention that is because we're, we're all on this journey. Greg talked about last week how we all have travel plans. We're all on this journey towards a destination, a final destination, in fact. And some of us are going to be surprised at what the final destination ends up being. That it's not what we were expecting it to be, not what we were assuming it would be. And that's why we're doing this series, to help you have that confidence to know what is that final destination. What, is, what does it look like? Uh, can I have confidence that, that I'm going to the destination that I really think I'm going to? And so um, last week, if you were here, uh, Greg started talking about that. He talked about Sheol, kind of that holding place, uh, kind of the intermediate state before the final judgment. Uh, once the final judgment comes, though, all our deeds are going to be laid bare and there'll be a verdict that's given and a sentence that's given. That's what the book of 2 Corinthians kind of describes this scene. If you look at the screen, 2 Corinthians uh, says it this way. 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 5, verse 10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So after death, there's this, this judgment that comes to us. And it's not an arbitrary judgment, but it's based on the acts, the actions that we've done in this life, whether good or evil. And so this week, we're going to be talking about hell. And honestly, it's one of those topics, you know, I, I don't enjoy talking about. Uh, I think it's one of those ones, if you were going to be talking about hell to someone else, it probably makes it a little uncomfortable. And I think part of it is just because it's an unpleasant topic. But yet it's a necessary one for us to talk about. As we talk about final destinations, as we talk about the choices that we make here, um, here as well. And so we're going to be talking about that. And as I do, um, as we start talking about it, I guess I know there's certain uh, objections, concerns, questions, ideas that you may have going into this. As you think about what hell is like, maybe you find yourself thinking one of these things. Maybe you're thinking, you know, hell is not really that bad of a place. You know, Greg kind of touched on that last week. Maybe when you think about hell, you think of just a big party with, you know, all the alcohol you can take in. I mean, that it's not that bad of a place to go to. Maybe it's not that, but maybe you think, you know, hell, it doesn't really exist. You know, it's just kind of something that's made up. And what we're finding uh, just from polls and studies that we do is Americans are becoming more and more skeptical about heaven and hell. Uh, last year, I think it was, they did a poll and only about 55% of Americans said they even believed in hell. And that, 10 years ago, was like 70%. So it's kind of becoming less and less. And I think just as a whole, uh, we're becoming more skeptical if there's anything after this life. Maybe it's, it's not that hell doesn't exist, but maybe you think hell's only reserved for the worst of the worst. It's for Hitler and people like him, but not for normal people uh, to go to. And, and I know there's maybe other concerns that you may have, other questions or ideas, but um, as we begin, I just, I just want you to kind of set those aside for a minute and try and look objectively at what Jesus said about what hell is. Uh, we're going to look at some other passages from the scripture too, but primarily the words of Jesus. And I think as we go through our time together, we're going to answer and we're going to speak to all of those issues, all of those objections that I just mentioned. So what exactly does the Bible say about hell? When you look through the pages of scripture, you find that the gospels in particular focus uh, or speak the most, I guess you could say, about hell. 
And when you look at the Gospels, there's a particular word that's primarily used to describe hell. It's the Greek word Gehenna. In your Bible, it may say that when you're reading through the Gospels. But, but, but Gehenna is transliterated from the Hebrew, meaning Valley of Hanom. So if you're wondering kind of the title for today, where it came from, that's where it came from. It's from this word Gehenna, meaning the Valley of Hanom. Um, and it was kind of the common way to refer to hell by Jesus and by the other uh, Jews in his day as well. So let me just describe kind of what that valley is like, why they use that term to describe hell. So the Valley of Hanom, it was near Jerusalem, and it was a notorious site where the Israelites practiced idolatry, where child sacrifices took place to the gods of Molech and Baal. Uh, you can read about that in Second Kings. It was a place where corpses and ashes were thrown, according to Jeremiah. And it was a place where Isaiah's concluding vision of rotting and smoldering corpses was probably set. And later, it would come to also be associated as a garbage dump, a place where trash would go and, and would be burned. So you got all these kind of images, ideas, behind this concept of Gehenna, or behind this idea of the Valley of Hanom. Um, that Jesus, as he, as he talks about it, that's kind of what he has in mind as he's, uh, that's the imagery he has in mind as he's sharing it, as he's talking about it. So if you want to turn to Matthew 25, we're going to focus on one section uh, in the Gospels for what Jesus said about hell. So Matthew 25, verse 31, uh, if you need a Bible, you can grab one under the seat in front of you, and it's going to be on page 831. So Matthew 25, verse 31, it begins like this. When the Son of Man came in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he'll separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he'll place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So in this scene in Matthew 25, we're going to look at kind of five points uh, from it. Five things that it talks about and describes and, and says about hell. And so the first one I just want to make is hell is a place of punishment after judgment. If you look again... At verse 32, notice what it says. You have this judgment, this separation here. It says, before him will be gathered all the nations and he'll separate people one from another. Just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And then you skip down to the end of the section and you notice the uh, verdict, the judgment that's given. And these on his left, he's talking about, will go away into eternal punishment. But the righteous into eternal life. 
So you have this scene of, of judgment and then the verdict, the, the sentencing being carried out. I mean, you think about it in terms of our court system today. Uh, when you have a trial that's going on, you get all the evidence, right, that's presented, that's gathered, uh, and then what happens next? The judge or the jury decides, are they guilty or not guilty based on the evidence, right? Um, and so if they're not guilty, they can go free. If they're guilty, though, what follows? The sentencing. You know, the punishment, what that's going to be. And so hell's the place of, of punishment. It's where uh, punishment will take place after the judgment. And as you look in the scriptures, it seems to speak about the fact that there's going to be degrees of punishment. Different sentences, you might say. It's still hell, but there's going to be severities, I guess you could say. And uh, Greg will probably speak to this issue in terms of reward, because it seems to be that the Bible also says there's going to be degrees of reward. But, uh, but in, this, in this section, um, uh, in, this, in this area of hell, I guess, I want to just make that point, that someone like Hitler, they're going to suffer to a greater degree than someone else who hasn't committed the same kinds of atrocities as well. And there's a lot of places in Scripture we could look to to speak to this. But one of them, uh, just that I want to point out, is in the book of Luke, chapter 12, in the words of Christ. He says, And that servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and, and did what deserved the beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. And just notice, I mean, those two different uh, punishments given, that severe and that light one that's there. And that seems to be what the scriptures indicate, that there'll be uh, uh, kind of degrees of punishment, but hell is a place of punishment after judgment. Secondly, hell is described primarily in this passage and elsewhere in this imagery of kind of fire and darkness. Those are two common ideas uh, that you see. If you look in verse 41 in Matthew 25 again, notice what it says. And then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. In Revelation 20, uh, you see the same image of fire coming up. If you want to throw that on the screen, Revelation 20. It says, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Uh, in Matthew 25, again, if you skip up to verse 30, it's describing the same scene, and it uses this image of darkness then. It says, cast the, unworth, cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then just the final verse I want to mention from Mark, it says, describing it again, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So you see all these kind of descriptions about what hell is like. And fire, darkness, those are primary ones being used. Um, there's also some of these other aspects and images that come into play. And sometimes people ask, you know, are these, is this literal kind of flames or is this more figurative? And uh, I tend to take it um, a little more probably figurative. But, you know, regardless, the question I think of is what's trying to be conveyed by these images? And it seems like the, the bottom line that's trying to be conveyed is this is a place of, of misery, of pain, of sorrow, that it's a terrible place. I mean, that seems to be the bottom line of what's trying to be communicated by Jesus and the other authors um, in the scriptures as well. That it's a place that no one, uh, you would want no one to go to. And yet this last verse in Mark also seems to speak about the fact that there's uh, no relenting of this punishment. That if you notice it, notice what it says, their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. 
The whole idea of the fire's not extinguished, or there's no, there's no uh, let up, I guess, in that punishment. It's like when you burn yourself when you're cooking, uh, the pain continues on afterwards. It doesn't stop. And maybe you put something to soothe the pain, to ease it. In this sense, it's, it's never going to. And just, you know, pause for a second and think about these verses we just read. Think about what it describes. I mean, just, just close your eyes for a second and, and picture this, okay? Picture yourself sitting alone in a cell, in a prison cell. It's pitch black in there. There's no windows, no light, just darkness. There's no hope of escape. You're isolated. You're alone. It's just this place of solitary confinement. No one else is there. You don't interact with anyone else. You have no one else to talk to, no one to visit you. It's just a a complete place of darkness and isolation. And then add to that, just picture these these, uh, cries of weeping, of wailing, people just seeking to get out of there. Add to that maybe a sensation of of, uh, pain or burning on your skin. I mean, you just begin to, to capture, I think, a little glimpse of what hell could be like. And the reason I kind of mention that and want you to think about that is, is it's heavy, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's heavy when you really stop and consider these words that describe hell. And it's kind of the, the, the weight of it, I guess, is really what I feel like I've been kind of thinking through and carrying this week, is this is a, a weighty topic. It's, it's tough to think about, and it's clear from all these places, hell's no party. Hell's no place you would want to go. Hell's not a place you would want anyone to go to. And I think that's why Jesus continually, continually tells people to not go there, to flee from that, to repent, to not head to that destination. And yet I know there's still some people that kind of wonder, you know, does, does hell even exist? Is it even that bad compared to everything we're talking about here? And I think part of why we question it is because it makes us uncomfortable, I mean, a parallel, I guess, that came to my mind is you've probably been watching TV before and then that commercial comes on. You know, you know the commercial I'm talking about. There's the abused, you know, animals or there's those impoverished kids. And what do you want to do when that comes on? You know, change the channel, right? You don't want to watch that. You don't want to let it affect you. You don't want to be moved by it and do something about it. You want to brush it aside. You want to turn your eyes to something else. I think the same is true as we talk about hell. It's a tough thing to talk about. It's not a pleasant topic. And so I think it's, it's easy for us to want to be dismissive about it. And yet we need to take the scriptures seriously at what they say. And so the third thing I want to mention is uh, hell is a place of never-ending punishment. I mean, if hell wasn't bad enough, uh, if you look at verse 46 in Matthew 25 again, it seems to indicate that it's a life sentence that goes on forever, that there's no end to this. Notice what it says. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. I mean, notice that contrast given between eternal life and eternal punishment. Um, and I know one, one commentator I came across was talking about the idea, part of the reason for this Maybe because people in hell continue to sin and break God's law and so are punished as a result. But regardless of that, I just thought, you know, the Bible's clear that hell is, is the place of judgment with no possibility of parole or being pardoned. That it's that final destination. And it's a place of never-ending punishment. There's, there's another view, some of you maybe have heard of this. It's, it's uh, kind of becoming a little more 
common, I think, in some ways today, and it's a view called annihilationism. And it's the view that uh, at the judgment, those who are evil, they'll be judged and then they'll be annihilated. They'll be uh, cease to exist at that point. That that's the judgment. That's the punishment. Some will vary that a little and say there's punishment for a time and then they'll cease to exist. And honestly, I mean, it's an appealing idea. I mean, it avoids having to deal with hell. But yet, as you look at the scriptures, it, it doesn't seem to leave much room for this view. Uh, just in verse 46 again, notice it uses the same word for eternal punishment as eternal life. It's the same word. And so however you take it towards eternal life, you have to take it towards eternal punishment. And it seems to be, as you look at uh, that word in the Greek, that it carries with it the idea of, of eternity, of continuing on. Um, and also with that, I, I just can't help but think, you know, if people were judged and then annihilated, um, doesn't it seem a little bit unjust in some ways? For instance, if Hitler came to that place of judgment before God, and God says, you're guilty, and then he's annihilated and that's it. Doesn't that seem a little unjust that after all he's done, after all he's caused to suffer, to die, that his punishment wouldn't fit all the atrocities that he had done? I think that's just one more reason why, though it's appealing, this view of, of annihilationism, I don't think the scriptures support that. And yet, even if the Bible did support that idea that there's suffering for a time and then it's over, uh, would you want anyone to still go there, to still go to hell, even if it was only for a time and it wasn't forever? I mean, I wouldn't want anyone to go there still, even if it was only temporary, but yet it seems to be eternal. It seems to continue on. Fourth, notice that hell was not meant to be our final destination. And I think this is where we begin to see, uh, I guess, kind of a, a change in the whole whole reason for hell, um, for the, uh, I guess you begin to see a little light creep through is a, is a way to say it. Notice what verse 34 and 41 says in, in Matthew 25. Verse 34 says, the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then skip down to verse 41 and notice what it says. Then he'll say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Uh, what you see in the book of Revelation, if you turn there as well, uh, is that it seems to be that hell wasn't God's original design. It wasn't, wasn't God's original um, place that he wanted mankind to go. I mean, from verse 34, it seems to be that uh, really the kingdom of heaven, that heaven seemed to be God's first choice. But yet as man disobeyed and went against God and his law and his plan, that ultimately a punishment was going to come. That just as Satan rebelled and did his own thing and, and went against God and his ways and was going to be punished as a result, that that's going to happen to mankind as well. And the reason I bring that up even is because I think for some people, the whole notion of hell makes them think, you know, God must be some heartless deity to even have hell exist, for that to even be a place. And yet we look in the scriptures and we see that God is a God of love, but God is also a God of, of justice and holiness. And so you have to kind of reconcile those two ideas. And I think because God is, is just as well as loving, he's patient with us. Uh, in the book of Second Peter, notice what it says. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And think about it this way. Some of you... I know our, our parents here in the room. And uh, think about if, if your child who's, let's say he's an adult, uh, maybe college age or older. Imagine if you started hearing 
about just the things he was getting involved with. That you hear he's getting involved with uh, just really drinking, getting drunk all the time, starting to hook up with, with women, you know, excessively, and uh, just constantly. And then on top of that, you just hear he's also getting involved in uh, illegal drugs as well. And just think about if that was your son, what would you want to do? Wouldn't you want to intervene? Wouldn't you want to try and stop him? Wouldn't you want to try and plead with him to not go down that path? To stop going down that path of destruction and pain and uh, just having to deal with all the consequences. But yet, isn't it his choice? Isn't it his choice to continue down that path or to change? I mean, as much as it would break your heart to see your son having to deal with that, having to face that, having to go through that, it's his decision, his life, his choices. And yet, God's the same way towards us. You look in the book of Ezekiel, and it just sounds like the words of a parent to their child being broken. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? I mean, just notice that plea that God has, that that's not the outcome, that's not the path that you have to take. And it's precisely because God's loving and gracious, that he's patient with us and that he's provided a way through the death of his son for us. And yet God's patience for you and I is gonna run out at some point. At some point his patience will end and then comes judgment. This, then comes punishment. If you, if you look at the Old Testament, that seems to be the pattern that God allows mankind to do their own thing, to go their own way, to rebel against him, to, to act selfishly, to break God's law. But there's only, uh, God only allows it to a certain point, and then he stops them, and he judges them. In the Old Testament, you can see this with uh, Noah and the flood. You can see it with the Tower of Babel as the people are dispersed. You can see it with the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, that God seems to be patient with mankind, but only up to a certain point. And then because he is both loving and he's just, he has to judge. He has to punish. He has to, to do that. And it's not something that he delights in doing, as that verse in Ezekiel says, but it's something he must do as a a judge as well. And the final point I want to point out from this uh, passage in Matthew 25 is that many will be surprised at their final destination. Many will be surprised. Many will think that they're headed to one destination, towards heaven. But in the end, they're going to be surprised that that isn't the destination that they were headed at. It's kind of like the trip I mentioned at the beginning. Cammie and I thought we were going to a certain destination, a certain place. But when we arrived, we found out that was not at all the destination that we had in mind. And the same will happen to uh, some of us. A poll I I came across kind of stated it well. It was from a few years back, and they asked Americans, do you believe that there's a heaven? And uh, out of those that said they believe that there's a heaven, they said, what do you think your chances are of going there? And so 79% of people that said they believe in heaven rated their chances as being good or excellent as going there. But then they asked uh, people as well, do you believe in hell? Do you believe hell exists? And the people that said hell does exist, they said, what do you think your chances are of going there? And 6% said they thought they were good or excellent. And the reason I mention that is because it seems to point out the common notion that no one thinks they're going to hell, everyone thinks they're going to heaven. That seems to be the common kind of viewpoint for us as Americans. And yet Jesus seems to challenge that notion. He seems to say, be careful 
about that. If you look at verse 44 and 45, it seems to imply just this surprise that the destination that these, uh, this group on the left was, was thinking they were going to wasn't their final destination. But if you look even earlier in the book of Matthew, you can see it even clearer. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, notice what Jesus says. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. And just notice that first part again. Not everyone. Not everyone who says that there's a God. Not everyone who attends church. Not everyone who's a good person. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But notice what follows. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to you, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I mean, wow. You know, what a shock that would be to have that pronouncement made. I never knew you. I mean, it's, it's sobering, isn't it? When you think about that statement. That not everyone who thinks they know God truly do. That not everyone who thinks they'll be going to heaven truly will. And so the question I just want to end with and, and spend our last few minutes discussing is how can we have confidence in our final destination? How can we be sure that we're not headed towards hell thinking it's really going to be heaven instead? How can we ensure that we're on the right path, that we're headed in the right direction? And so I want to just give you two things, two things to do to help give you some of that confidence. And the first is this, examine your actions. Examine your actions. And a question you may want to write down is, what do your actions indicate about your final destination? What do your actions indicate about your final destination? Again, in this passage in Matthew 7, if you want to throw that up there, just before verse 21 where we picked up, notice what Jesus says. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. Notice that. They're going to appear a certain way to you. But inwardly, they're ravenous wolves. They're going to be totally different than that. They're not going to be as they appear. You'll recognize them by their fruits. What Jesus seems to be getting at is you'll recognize them by, your, by their actions, by their outward expressions, by how they conduct themselves. That's how you're going to notice uh, who they truly are. He says, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you'll recognize them by their fruits, by their actions. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But notice again what he says. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Jesus places this emphasis on action, on acting upon the words that you've received, not just knowing them, but doing them. That's that, that last part again, notice, the one who does the will of my Father. Not the one who just knows, not the one who just knows that there's a God, or the, the one who just knows or looks religious, but the one who acts upon the knowledge that they have, that acts upon what they've received. And really, the whole premise that, that Jesus is getting at is that a transformed heart produces a transformed life. That as, as you begin to follow Christ and really understand what he did for you, that he begins to change you from the inside out, that your actions begin to change as a result of the inward changes that are happening in your life. That you could say you begin to act more like Jesus through your actions. And let me just give you two big, two big actions to ask yourself, do I see these in my life? 
Uh, if you look at the book of 1 John, if you want to put that up there, uh, he gives us two qualities. And these aren't the only ones, but these are two big ones, I think, that he says, if you truly are a follower of Christ, you're going to see these actions in your life. He says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. In other words, do you find it easy to just keep sinning, to make it a habit, to just continue down that path? Or does it bother you? Is it something that uh, I guess grips your conscience that you feel like I can't continue down this path anymore. It says someone who is a follower of Christ, they can't keep doing that. They can't keep going down that path of just doing the same thing and same thing and same thing. It says by this it is evident who are the children of God and who does and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness or right living or right actions, you could say, is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brothers. So it points out points out again this issue. Are you seeking, I guess, purity, you could say, right living, or are you just chasing after sin and not even giving it a second thought? And the other one, notice at the end there, is there a love for your brother? Speaking of uh, other brothers and sisters in Christ in particular, is there a love, a concern, a care, uh, a call to action when you see someone else suffering in the body of Christ that you go, you know what, I want to do something. I want to help. I want to do what I can in that place. And what I'm not saying by all this is that if your destination's heaven, you're going to live perfect lives. But what I'm saying is, is that if you've trusted Christ, he's going to begin to produce a changed life within you. And again, these are two things just from the book of 1 John that you can look at and that you can examine your heart and your life about. And, you know, I could spend the whole sermon just talking about what does 1 John say about people who are followers of Christ? What are, what are the key characteristics or markers of those who truly have come to know God? Uh, but I don't have time to do that. So if this is an area maybe you're thinking about that it really kind of, you know, got something going within your own soul, I would just encourage you to stop by the connections table after service, and they have a handout called Assurance that goes through all the qualities that the book of 1 John talks about uh, believers having as well. So the, the first thing I mentioned, examine your actions. What does it say about your final destination? The second thing, examine your trust. And I think this is an even bigger thing for us to consider. And again, a question to, to ask yourself, what are you trusting to save you from hell and get you into heaven? What are you trusting? Or another way to think about it, do you think you deserve heaven? If you asked, answered that question, you know, what do I trust? that I'm going to avoid hell and get into heaven? Would it be the good that you've done? Would it be the fact that, you know, you try and live, you know, upright, you know, moral life as best you can? Is it that I go to church and I think, you know, that's, that's kind of enough to get me in? I mean, what, what is it to you? Uh, let, me, let me kind of get you thinking about it differently. You know, if I asked you, do you think you live a good life? You know, you might say, yeah. Well, who are you comparing yourself to? When I say, do you live a good life? If I said, do you live a good life compared to Jesus, what would your answer be? I mean, would it be the same? I mean, I think if I was asked that question, I might go, you know what, compared to other people, yeah, I live a pretty good life, but, you know, when I look at my life compared to Christ, it's very different. It's, it's not at all at that same place. I don't think it's as good as it would, as it would be compared to someone else. It, it changes when we set our standard differently, when we compare ourselves to Jesus rather than to one another. And the Bible says God's holy, just, 
righteous, that he can't be in the presence of sin. And yet, when we think about heaven, the place where God is, I mean, who truly can be in that domain? You know, Christ. He's the only one sinless, perfect, the one that has never uh, given into sin and followed after that. None of us are good enough on our own. We all fall short of the standard to get in. The book of Romans says it this way. Everyone has sinned. Everyone has sinned. Everyone here, everyone you know, everyone in your family, everyone you work with, everyone in this city, everyone in this nation, everyone in this world has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. We all fall short. We can't do it on our own. We can't get in based on the good that we do. We can't get in. In fact, we deserve to be punished based on what we've done rather than to be rewarded based on what we've done. Our only hope for heaven is found in trusting Christ. Again, in Romans, he puts it this way. For the wages of sin, in other words, what we've earned because of our sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, notice that. God in his grace and his mercy and love has offered us a gift. When someone offers you a gift, what can you do with that gift? You can accept it or you can reject it. It's your choice what you're going to do with that gift. It's freely offered, freely given to you, but you can choose, am I going to accept this gift or reject this gift? It's your choice. Further in the book of Romans, notice it elaborates and says, but if you confess with your mouth, mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And is saved. As scripture is clear, the only way for us to get into heaven is to trust what Christ has done for us. To trust what he's done rather than what we've done with our lives. Because our actions earn us punishment, earn us hell. Uh, But because of Christ, because of what he's done, because he died and suffered and took the punishment of our sin, we can be forgiven. We can spend an eternity in heaven as a result. But again, today is the day we have to decide what our destination is going to be. We have to decide now while we have time, while we have the opportunity, because a time will come when there is no more time, when judgment will be here. And we can't decide then, you know, where do we want to go? What destination do we want to have? Because it'll be too late when we're standing before Christ. And so I just want to urge you and encourage you to to think about that, to, to make a decision before it's too late to follow Christ, to trust in him rather than in yourself. Don't just assume that you're going to heaven because it's not the default destination. Uh, But as I said, examine your actions. What do they indicate about your final destination? And examine your trust. What are you trusting to help you avoid the punishment of hell and to get you into heaven? As we close, would you just bow your heads with me and uh, close your eyes? You know, maybe today, so we've been talking about these, these tough truths from the scripture about hell. Uh, maybe it's made you wonder where you place your trust. And maybe uh, today you need to think about this gift that God offers you, that he's given you that choice of your destination. It's a free gift. But you have to choose, am I gonna accept this gift or reject it? That God's provided that way of escape for us, but it's not based on anything we've done only based on what Christ has done. And so if you want to receive that gift today, would you just pray this simple prayer with me? And it's not the prayer that saves you. You're just expressing your trust. And so just pray this with me. God, I just acknowledge that I'm imperfect, that I've made mistakes, that I've sinned. 
against you and against others. And on my own, I can't get into heaven. And I know I deserve to be punished for disobeying, for breaking your law, for not going the route that you've put before me and put before all of us. And so God, would would you just forgive me based on what Christ has done? And would you begin to change and transform my life because of that too? God, I just acknowledge and trust in Christ today and lean solely upon him for your forgiveness. And I pray this in your name. Amen.